0: Take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of John chapter 6, John chapter 6, as we continue to see and savor Jesus Christ. One thing that uh, Pastor Steve and I are passionate about is in helping you connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible is not a collection of random, disconnected stories where we can just grab a few moral lessons uh, out of them, grab a few tips for life. Instead, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, while made up of many stories, are all interconnected and part of a much bigger, single, unifying story. And ultimately, the story of the Bible is about Jesus Christ, Jesus is the main character of the Bible. He is the main protagonist. He is the ultimate hero and he is present on every page of scripture whether explicitly or implicitly. And the apostle John helps us to helps us to remember that in his gospel. He helps us to see how the things in redemptive history that came before Jesus points to Jesus, leads up to Jesus, is about Jesus, or is fulfilled in Jesus. The gospel of John is overflowing with Old Testament imagery. So, for example, in chapter 1, Jesus is revealed to be the creator that was mentioned in Genesis. He also mentions in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial lambs. In chapter 2, Jesus is revealed to be the true and better temple wherein dwells the fullness of the presence of God. In chapter 4, Jesus is identified with the living water, the water, this water that the Old Testament associates with the rich provision of God himself. In John chapter 5, John shows us how Jesus is the main subject of the Torah, the law of God. When John quotes Jesus as saying, Moses wrote about me. In John chapter 8, we discover that the covenant hope of the patriarch Abraham was bound up in the coming Messiah. As Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And when right after that, Jesus boldly declares, before Abraham was, I am. He's essentially saying, it was I who met Moses at the burning bush. Psalm 23 talks about the Lord being the shepherd of his people. Zechariah 13 talks about the shepherd who will be struck. And Jesus comes along in John chapter 10, says, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is spoken of as a vine. And Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. He is the true and better Israel. All of the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this theme continue in our chapter today, in John chapter 6, where in the beginning of the chapter, we see Jesus miraculously feeding thousands of people by creating bread. And he explains that the purpose of this miracle of creating bread was meant to point to himself as the bread of life. That just as physical bread nourishes and satisfies our bodies, he, as the bread of life, nourishes and satisfies the deepest needs of our soul. And what's the crowd's reaction to this good news? Is it celebration? Is it joy? Is it worship? Let's find out. Why don't you stand with me now and we will read starting at verse 41 and we will continue on down through the end of the chapter, and we will see right away the reaction of the, of, the, of the people. Verse 41, word of God says, so the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I appeal to you this morning because what I want to see happen this morning is something that I cannot make happen through my speech and through my rhetoric. It can only happen as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon everybody in this room. And Father, I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, Help us to see Jesus with greater clarity, to see him as the source of life, as the source of peace, as the source of satisfaction. And I pray that you would help us to turn away from those other things, those lesser things that are pulling at us, that are tugging at us, that are trying to to get us to seek after those things for life and satisfaction and help us instead come to the bread. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This whole chapter, John chapter 6, is, is meant to evoke in his first century Jewish readers and in 21st century readers who know their Bibles, it's meant to evoke images of Israel in the Exodus and in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Throughout this chapter, we see words like Moses, bread, mountain, Passover, we see themes such as the people being in a desolate place without food and they receive bread miraculously out of thin air, we see themes like Jesus' mastery over the sea when he walked on water, which is reminiscent of the decisive moment in the exodus when God subdued the waters of the Red Sea and Israel passes through the waters safely to the other side. We also see another theme, we see themes of grumbling grumbling. We see it in verses 41, 43, verse 61. Interesting choice of language from the Apostle John. In the Bible, grumbling is regularly associated with Old Testament Israel and their dissatisfaction and their mistrust of God's protection and their rejection of God's provision. You ought to have that in mind when you read John chapter 6. Now, when Jesus multiplies the bread for the people, the crowds rightly connect this with the Old Testament provision of manna. They make a right connection, but a wrong application. Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, turn back with me uh, to Exodus chapter 16 we look at exactly what they're talking about. Exodus chapter 16, very easy book to find. It's the second book of the Bible. Go all the way back to the beginning, and there's Genesis. You go over one more, and you get to Exodus. Exodus chapter 16. In essence, the, the people are saying to Jesus, okay, Jesus, you've got our attention, but for us to really believe in you, we need something more, If you are really the prophet that Moses predicted, then do what Moses did. Give us this bread always. So, look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel did what? Grumbled. There's that word again. Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. So, why are the people grumbling? What's at the heart of their problem? They're worried about starvation in the wilderness. Despite the promises of God and despite God's past faithfulness to the people. Hello, anybody remember the Red Sea? Despite all of that, they grumble, and they become dissatisfied, and they do not trust that God will provide them with everything that they need. So God graciously provides them with this bread, this manna, to eat. But that's not the end of Israel's problem, because their problem was never food. Instead, it was something deeper. Turn over now to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. So you just go over a couple more books, Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then Numbers. And in Numbers 21, Israel is still in the wilderness, and they are now being fed by God regularly. They're getting this bread every single day. And look at verse 5. They're grumbling again. The people spoke against God ...and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Hmm. Now, why are the people grumbling? Why are they grumbling now? What's at the heart of their problem here? They say that they're worried about starvation... But that doesn't make any sense. Because God now has been regularly supplying the people with manna. So if they're not really in danger of starvation, what's the problem? What's the real problem? The problem is not that God is not providing for them. The problem is that they don't like the provision. They don't receive the provision. They call the manna worthless food. And they loathe it. They have appetites and cravings for other foods, and those cravings drive them to reject God. Which brings me to my first reflection on this text is that our cravings can kill us. Our cravings can kill us. Keep your thumb or your finger, a piece of paper in numbers. We'll be back there later, but right now you can go back to John chapter 6. And in verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I can see him pointing to himself. This is the bread, me. The crowds want what their ancestors had. They are craving after physical bread and Jesus is telling them, that that may be what you want, but that's not what you need. That's not going to help you in the end. Your fathers had all the physical bread they wanted, and where are they now? Their, Their skeletons in the wilderness have long turned to dust, and they, like everybody else, are overcome by death. God and God's Word were not at the center of their universe. Their stomachs were. Their particular cravings were. And when anything other than God is at the center of your universe, you will die in your sins. These rebellious Israelites in the wilderness in the Old Testament and the crowds in John chapter 6 are afraid of something. But they are afraid of the wrong thing. Jesus is reminding the people that starvation is not the worst thing that can happen to you that not getting a particular craving, a particular desire met, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Instead, the scariest thing that can happen to you is to is for you to reject God in favor of your cravings, of your appetites, your cravings for other things, and then for God to turn around and reject you, leaving you to not just to, to physical death, but fearsome judgment from a holy God. This problem with food, with out-of-control cravings, this problem that led to sinful, rebellious rejection of God, that was a reoccurring problem with Old Testament Israel in the wilderness. Turn with me now back to Numbers, and let's go to chapter 11. Chapter 11, starting at verse 4. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So here we go again. God provides the people manna. He provides them with bread from heaven. But their cravings and their appetites are pulling them in a different direction. And they look back on their time in Egypt, not with dread due to their slavery, but with longing. Because, yeah, we were slaves, but we ate good. They are so desperate for what they are craving, they cannot even see that if they follow their stomachs back to Egypt, they'll be put back in chains or destroyed. They are so obsessed with what they want and with what they think they need, they cannot even see clearly anymore. Now skip down to verse 18 for God's response. Consecrate yourselves tomorrow, and you shall eat meat... For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Can you imagine how insulting that must have been to God? It was better when my babies were being thrown into the Nile River than being with God out here. Look what God says. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day or two days. Five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? What's God saying? He's saying saying, You want meat? I'm gonna give you meat. And as an act of judgment, I'm going to turn you over to yourself. I'm going to turn you over to your own desires, and you will receive your just penalty for rejecting God. I'm going to give you over to these things, and in the end, you are going to see that these things do not satisfy. Skip down with me to verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side, a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibroth, Hatava, that, that, means, that, that word has something to do with craving, that's what, what that means. They named that place Kibroth Hatava because there they buried the people who had the craving. That's one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. That's terrifying. The people have persistently rebelled against God. They have persistently pushed back against God, and they have rejected His provision. They, they didn't want the manna. They didn't appreciate the manna. They didn't think that what God was providing for them was the best thing. They thought they knew what was best, and they demanded that God give them something different They're pushing against God and they're embracing these other cravings instead. They have dethroned God and have crowned their stomachs king, their cravings king, and God turns them over to their desires and it ends with their destruction. Jesus, in John chapter 6, is telling the people, you don't want what you think you want. Your fathers had full bellies thanks to the gracious provision of God and they still died. Whether whether it was in a judgment like in Numbers 11 or whether it was a result of old age. Even those rebellious Israelites who munched on the manna for 40 years returned to the dust with nothing to show for it. They didn't go into the promised land. Jesus is showing these disgruntled Jewish disciples in John chapter 6, and he is showing us here at Harbin's church that our cravings can kill us, and we have all kinds of cravings. You want personal application here? Application goes way beyond food. We should not read John chapter 6 thinking, Well, I guess it's not okay, It's, it's not okay for me to lust after food, but it is okay for me to lust after everything else. No. Ultimately, this is about any craving, any desire, any hunger that grows to the point where it becomes more important than the provision that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And while certainly some of these cravings are obviously sinful things, let me tell you something. Some of these cravings, a lot of these cravings may be rooted in things that in and of themselves are ultimately good. Watch out for those ones. Food is in and of itself, is a good thing until it grows to monstrous proportions and it becomes a God for us. Our health, in and of itself, is a good thing until it it displaces God uh, as the center of our heart's affections. Many of us crave a good marriage. That's good. You should want that. You should pray for that. Good marriage is a wonderful thing, but... If you are seeking your deepest source of happiness, peace, and satisfaction in that and not in God, guess what? You have just found your idol, and it will destroy you in the end. And though Christians need not fear the final judgment of God, we too must battle these idols that tend to creep up in our hearts because they can cause devastating damage and heartbreaking consequences in our lives. And I dare say that there are some of you in this room who know exactly what I'm talking about. There have been things in your life, certain cravings and desires that you have, both bad and good, that at one time elevated themselves above God and became more important to you than God. And you followed after those things and chased after those things and and you saw things crashing down around you in the end as you realized that those things did not ultimately satisfy and those things ultimately did not give you in the end what you really needed some of you have been there in the past some of you are there right now and the holy spirit is speaking to some of you probably in this room about about some things that are popping into your mind that uh, that are at risk of of being elevated and exalted above god we all have a pull to want to seek what we need outside of the provision of God, outside of Jesus Christ. We all have a pull to chase after lesser things when Jesus Christ is standing right in front of us offering us something a million times better. He offers us life. With Jesus' bread, you live. With Jesus' bread, you live. Look at verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. "'so that one may eat of it and not die. "'I am the living bread that came down from heaven. "'If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. "'And the bread that I will give "'for the life of the world is my flesh.' "'The Jews then disputed among themselves, "'saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? "'So Jesus said to them, "'Truly I say to you, "'unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man "'and drink his blood, you have no life in you. "'Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood "'has eternal life, "'and I'll raise him up on the last day.' For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus says that eating his bread gives eternal life. What's, now, what's eternal life? What is that? Jesus gives you the answer, actually, in John chapter 17, a few chapters over, where he says in verse 2, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, knowing Jesus Christ is eternal life. Not not just knowing facts about him. Satan knows facts about Jesus. Jesus. He doesn't have eternal life. To know Jesus means to have a, a relationship with Jesus, a, a union with Jesus. It means being satisfied in Jesus. It means enjoying Jesus. If God is, is truly the greatest and most supreme treasure we can have, then knowing God means knowing and enjoying and experiencing what is greatest and what is best. Eternal life is not just something that you get when you die. It's not simply heaven. It's something that can be received and experienced and enjoyed now. And Jesus is revealing to these hungry people that the manna that satisfied and has sustained Israel on a physical level In the Old Testament, for 40 years, was a shadow of something better. Of a bread that can satisfy and sustain not the mere bodies, but the souls of God's people. And not merely for 40 years, but for 400 trillion years and beyond, into eternity, forever. Jesus is the true and better bread. Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Now, what does that mean? How, how do you eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood to receive the nourishing, refreshing, satisfying life that your soul desperately needs? And I think Jesus gives us a, a clear answer that, interestingly enough, once again, takes us back to the Old Testament. Takes us back to Israel's experience in the wilderness. You can turn with me, if you want, to John chapter 3. And this is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he says something very, very interesting. Uh, in John chapter 3, verse 13 He says no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now we should be getting used to this by now. We should be getting used to constant Old Testament references, illusions, events, types, shadows. These these, these references that point to the reality of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And Jesus here is making a comparison between Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and Jesus himself being lifted up. Now, what does that mean? Well, we we find the answer once again in the book of Numbers, and you'll never guess what chapter. Numbers 21, which is where we were just a few minutes ago. We're trying to connect some dots here. This This is the same passage we were just looking at, but this time we're going to read a little bit more of it. Numbers 21, starting at verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. These people despise the bread that God has given them. They loathe the provision of God, and God judges them for their unbelief. But God not only brings death, he also makes provision for life. He has Moses make a bronze snake, a symbol of the curse. Something ugly, something wretched, something loathsome. And if the people will, by faith, obey the word of God and face that image of that curse, if they would just look on it, then they'll be healed. Jesus... In John chapter 3, in that conversation with Nicodemus, he's, he's telling him, that's what my mission is all about. Humanity has been snake bit. Long ago, in Genesis 3, that old serpent, the devil, enticed our forefather Adam into sin. And that sin affected Adam. It affects us. We're all sinners. We've all rebelled against God. And the venom of sin is, is, uh, is, is coursing through our veins, so to speak. And the Bible says the wages of sin is eternal death in hell. And this venom, this sin, stirs up these these unhealthy cravings and appetites for things outside of, of God. And we follow after those things. And like the people in Numbers chapter 21 were as good as dead already. But God not only judges sin with death, but he also makes provision for life. Which leads to my third observation is that we eat Jesus' bread through Belief. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying that God the Father sent him into the world to become a sign of God's curse, God's judgment, to become something wretched and loathsome, to be lifted up on a pole with nails driven into his hands and feet, and and all of us who have been snake bits, who have the venom of sin running through our veins, if we would by faith obey the word of God and look to Jesus Christ crucified, if we believe in him and trust in him, then we will be healed of our sin. Jesus says we will not perish but have eternal life. And going back to John 6, Jesus uses similar language with these crowds that are demanding he make them more bread for life. Jesus refuses to make more bread for them and says in chapter 6, verse 40, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Everyone who looks on the Son, the Son whose flesh will be lifted up on a pole, everyone who looks on Him will receive life. He says in the verse 51, "...the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." And it's not just his crucified flesh that gives life, it's his spilt blood. Which is exactly why he says a couple of verses down in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And Jesus' hearers are perplexed by this. Up to this point, when Jesus is talking about the bread of life, they are thinking on something that they can chew on and digest. They are thinking about literal, physical bread. They're thinking on a physical level. The crowd's thinking, "Manna, give us this bread always. And so when Jesus starts talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, they're even more perplexed. There is a revulsion and disgust because if anything was taboo to the Jewish person, it was consuming consuming human flesh and drinking blood. But Jesus is not talking about literal eating and literal drinking. He's not expecting the people to come and take a bite out of him. For Jesus, instead, eating is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for believing Jesus just said in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Believe in what? Believing that his death, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood pays in full the penalty for our sin. And if you really believe that, you will forsake all other efforts to be made right in the eyes of God. Forsaking good works, forsaking being religious, forsaking trusting in yourself or anything else to deal with your sin problem. And this is a hard thing for us, because we feel like there surely must be something that we are supposed to do in and of ourselves to achieve eternal life and be made right with God. What's my part in salvation? I'll tell you what your part is. Your part is being a condemned sinner. That's your part. And Jesus' part is to die for sins and to awaken faith in your heart so that you might put your trust in Him. We want to earn favor with God through our good works and our Efforts, But if we, if we think our own works earns merit with God or atones for our sin, then we are refusing to eat and drink Jesus. If we will not receive God's provision in Christ, recognizing that it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we're saved, that it is Christ and Christ alone uh, that, that he is the one that we need, then we are like those Israelites in the wilderness, loathing the bread of God and deeming it worthless. The bread of Jesus offends. That's my next point. The bread of Jesus offends. Jesus' hearers, again, act like their forefathers long ago. The the first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt were nauseated and offended by the manna that God kept providing for them. They say, we loathe this worthless bread. And now in John chapter 6, you have the one that the manna pointed to standing right before the crowd, and just like their forefathers, what do they do? They grumble and they complain and they are offended by God's true bread. Verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? As early as verse 41, they begin to be offended when Jesus does not meet their expectations. They, they grumbled when Jesus did not deliver for them in the way that they thought that he should. They were beside themselves when Jesus began talking about offering his flesh for the life of the world. And finally, in verse 60, they reject him altogether. These Jews in John 6 are acting eerily similar to their Old Testament forefathers in the wilderness. You know, the relationship that first generation of Israelites had with the manna was never a great relationship. Even in the very beginning, when God first saves the people from hunger and miraculously provides them with bread, their first reaction is not an explosion of worship and joy and thanksgiving to God. Their first reaction is to look at the bread and say what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? And and in time, their reaction descends into outright blasphemy later on when they say, we despise this loathsome and worthless bread. Same thing happens in John chapter 6. Jesus reveals himself as bread from heaven, and the immediate reaction is grumbling. And they say, in essence, in verse 41, what is this? Uh, who does he think he is? We know his family. We, we grew up with him. How can he claim these things? What, what is it? And that reaction continues to descend from grumbling into outright rejection as they loathe the bread of life. Jesus hears their grumbling hearts and says, Do you take offense at this? And, and to the ears of many today, the claims of Jesus are totally ridiculous and outrageous claims. If I came up here one morning and I told you that I came down from heaven... And said your life needs to revolve around Deemer Webb. That you need me more than you need breakfast or lunch or dinner. That you need Deemer Webb more than healing. That you need Deemer Webb more than money or a happy marriage or anything else. As long as you've got Deemer in your life, you can lose all those other things and you'll be great. Some of you are smiling because you know it's ridiculous. You'd be offended. And you should be offended if I said that because it's a lie, not to mention the fact that you should fire me and not let me be your pastor anymore if I start talking like that. But here comes Jesus. And, and Jesus is not like any other man. Deemer Webb can't satisfy your deepest needs and give you spiritual life, but a God-man can, and that's who Jesus is. Nothing else could truly satisfy man or give man life, so God came down himself to do what no one and nothing else could do. You receive him, you live. You reject him and loathe him. You go after other food. Instead of him, you die, period. And this is perhaps one of the most offensive things you can say in a, in a country today whose God is tolerance and their bellies, their cravings for other things. God's message to man will always be offensive. The cross is offensive because we can't believe God would use something as strange and foolish-looking As a crucified and bloodied Savior to rescue the world. And Jesus offering Himself as bread is offensive because we can't believe God would say that the things we think we need aren't as important as having a relationship with Jesus. How dare Jesus say that? Doesn't He know what I'm going through? Doesn't He know what I want, what I need? People aren't naturally interested in this bread, people are naturally interested in television. They're interested in eating delicious meals. They're interested in drugs. They're interested in money. They're interested in keeping their kids safe. They're interested in iPhones. They're interested in politics. They're interested in a Jesus who can help them get all the things that they want and think they need. We are a people who are craving things that are bad, and we are a people who are craving things that are good, But none of the things we are craving will truly give us the satisfaction and the life that we need. And all of these things become sin when they become greater to us than Jesus himself. If he is not at the center of our affections, and if those other things are becoming bread to us in place of Jesus, we have sinned. And so finally, the table is set before you. You can eat or you can walk away. There are only two ways to live Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's, that's maybe one of the saddest verses uh, in the life of Christ. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You got to remember how this chapter began, folks. It began with people being 20,000 20, people being excited about Jesus, enthusiastic about Jesus, and wanting to crown Jesus king. That's how it began, and now it ends with just about everybody taking a hike. Why? Because Jesus didn't give them what they wanted. They wanted something more than Him. They were using Him as a means to an end, not an end. It's interesting that these people in verse 66 are called disciples. They were following Jesus. They were learning from Him. They identified themselves with Jesus for a time. But when Jesus didn't deliver the way that they thought He should... They abandoned him. When he stopped feeding them physical bread and pointed to himself as the ultimate priority above everything else they craved, they deserted him. And folks, I've seen this many, many times. I've seen many times people interested in Jesus, people expressing enthusiasm about Jesus, people very excited about Jesus, people saying that Jesus is the Lord of their life. And they're very very thrilled about Jesus when things are going well. These disciples in John 6 started out that way. But eating and drinking Jesus, consuming Jesus in a way that brings life, isn't just about an interest in Jesus. It isn't a casual thing. When Jesus says, I am to be bread for you, he's saying everything is to revolve around me. I am your life. I'm ultimately what you need. As bread satisfies your body, I ultimately am to be your source for life and satisfaction. Acquiring your next meal, or anything else for that matter, is no longer to be your highest priority. I am to stand in your life as superior to all other things. Jesus elsewhere says, unless you forsake all other things, you can't be my disciple. And, now, and, and, and from now on, it's all about eating and drinking Jesus. Eating and drinking Jesus for the next 30, 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years, however long God gives you on this earth. And that message is threatening and offensive to any of us who are banking our hopes for life and peace and satisfaction on other things. And the reaction of most people today is the same reaction we see in John chapter 6. They say, it's a harsh saying. This, this offends us. And they turn around and walk away. We've got so many people who think that, who think that they're interested in Jesus. and When you tell them what Jesus is really all about, they're out of there. They switch religions. Or, They shape Jesus into their own image. Idolatry, once again. It's a harsh saying. And they walk away and they miss out on the most amazing treasure and source of satisfaction they could ever have had. They miss out on life itself. But you know what? We also see in this passage the right response. Verse 66 Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter sees himself as a starving man, and he recognizes that even if Jesus gives him free meals every day for the rest of his life, and in the end, that that was all that he got, it would mean nothing, and he would not have what he ultimately needs. He sees himself as a starving man, and standing before him is a banquet of life a banquet of life-giving food. He says, you have the words of eternal life. Peter recognizes that life is found in believing and embracing the words of Jesus. He comes to recognize what Israel and the wilderness, that first generation, never recognized. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, by the word of God. And who does John tell us the word is? Jesus. Jesus. Some of you in this room don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had an interest, a casual interest in him. Maybe you can identify with the the fickle disciples in John chapter 6. And maybe you're beginning to recognize that you have been actually more interested in using Jesus to help you get what you want than in Jesus himself. And if that's you this morning, I invite you to turn away from chasing after other things, both good and bad. Turn away from the cravings that can kill you and I want to invite you instead to turn to Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected for the sins of the world, including your sin of idol worship. That The cravings and the hunger you have exist to drive you to the only one that can ultimately satisfy your deepest desires. Jesus is saying to you this morning what he said in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I invite you to put all your hope and all your trust in flesh that was pierced, and blood that was spilled, and I invite you to forsake all lesser things and pursue Christ with your whole life, placing him at the center of your universe. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Some of you in this room, many of you in this room, do know Jesus, and you're Christians already. And yet you recognize that you still battle against that inner pull to hope and other things besides Jesus for life and joy and satisfaction. You are still battling unbelief. And you recognize that sometimes you still fall into those sins. And I confess before you this morning my own sinful tendencies and struggles here. You're not alone in this. I'm riding the trenches with you fighting that fight. And sometimes it is hard. And if you're like me this morning, I invite you to remember where life and hope is found. I invite you to join me in turning away from the, the rotten and decaying foods of dead religious works, of sinful pleasures of even those, those good things that we have elevated to a, to a status that is inappropriate. And instead, dine on broken flesh, consume poured out blood, trusting and believing once again that our, that our hope in life is found in Christ, in Christ alone. Not, not just our, our hope for heaven, yes, that too, but our hope for life and the abundant life that Jesus promises to His people now. The table is set. And it's your move. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to come to the table, to come to Christ. Forgive us of our sin of idolatry. Oh God, how many times, how many times have we put other things ahead of you? How many times have, have we have we followed after those cravings that are that are leading us in another direction? Oh God, we still we still battle with idol worship. <laughs> even on this side of salvation for those of us who are believers. Forgive us for that, Lord. And uh, as, as Pastor Steve was talking about earlier, uh, God, we need your help to increase the taste and our spiritual taste buds for you. We are still being weaned off of the junk food of the world. And our whole life, on this side of life, on this, on this side of eternity, our whole life is, 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 a, is a process of weaning. A process of of you cultivating the right appetites in our hearts. And Father, would you continue that process and would you maybe speed it up a little bit so we can hunger and thirst for you even more and turn to you and be satisfied. Help us with that, Father. And, And I pray for those this morning who have never, ever received you as Lord and Savior that this would be the day that they would come to you, that they would taste for the very first time, that they would taste and see that the Lord is. Good. In Jesus' name, amen.